So with that, would you stand with me? And we're going to read our passage for today's sermon. We are in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. For his name's sake, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Church, let's pray. Lord, we want to dwell in your house forever. We want to abide in you now and forever. Lord, the branch does nothing apart from the vine. The branch doesn't muster up its own power to make its own fruit. The branch just surrenders to the life that flows from the vine. Lord, would you surrender us in this season to you? Would you surrender us to the victory that is in following you in courageous obedience? Would you make us like you that we would sacrifice for your Father's glory, whatever that looks like? Lord, would you protect our church? Lord, there is attack all around. There is illness all around, even this morning, learning of things that are going on within our body, with our partners, with our families. And Lord, if we have ever needed you, it is now. And so, Lord, would you go before us? Will you be behind us? Will you be beside us, above and below? And Lord, will you do only the things that you can do? And would you give us the courage to follow in obedience and belief? Lord, we commit this season to you. We commit this morning to you. Have your way for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, church. I do want to publicly just thank Justin for his work on um, the prayer guide in front of you and Lauren Ayala and just all the work it, that went into putting that thing together. And so just took a lot of work by a lot of people and we are thankful for them. And as much as I want to have a rooted gathering after church, that's actually after the second service. So if you go over there after the first service, it's going to be lonely. You're just going to have lots of kids. And so we have one after second service if you want to make it there. Well, like many other Christians, I have been greatly influenced and blessed through the years by the writings of C.S. Lewis. And so whether that be, you know, Chronicles of Narnia growing up or when I read Mere Christianity in college or the screw tape letters as a young adult or the abolition of man, Lewis's words have kind of helped shape my understanding of the world. 
And one of Lewis's lesser-known books, and one of his last books that he wrote before he died, is one known by the name A Grief Observed. And, it, and it's a book about Lewis's dealing with the death of his wife. And um, if you don't know the story of Lewis's life, he was a bachelor for most of his life. It wasn't until the late, his late 50s that he got married to a woman named Joy Gresham, and he was smitten. And yet, after three years of marriage, she succumbed to cancer at the age of 45. And it just crushed Lewis. Just crushed him. And so, in the ensuing years afterwards, he ultimately wrote a book about that experience. And that's a book that's called A Grief Observed. And what's interesting is 20 years previous to that, Lewis wrote another book called The Problem of Pain. And The Problem of Pain is a book of making a defense of the goodness of God in a world of pain. So it's an apologetic for how God can be, exist and be good in a world of pain. So if you kind of put these two books together, one was a defense of a world of God in a world of pain. And the other was him crying out to God in the midst of his pain. And those two realities kind of come together in this line in a grief observed that I thought was pretty powerful, where Lewis writes these words. He says, we were promised sufferings. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I, that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others. And in reality, not imagination. So we're in week two of our three-week journey through Psalm 23. And up to this point, things have been great for the psalmist and great for us reading it, right? Last week, we looked at verses one through three about how the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I mean, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want uh, God as our shepherd? Who doesn't want a life of peace and tranquility? A life of restoration and righteousness. righteousness. I mean, like, sign me up. I'm in. And yet this morning... We come to verse 4, which means we're going to travel with the psalmist into the valley. We're going to go into those hard places because the truth is, is we don't spend the entirety of our life by still waters. We don't live each of our moments of the day in green pastures. Our life also involves traversing dark deep valleys, kind of the hard places of life. And just like verses one through three, which are as true as true can be, that the Lord is our shepherd and I shall not want, so is verse four, that the valleys will come, that the reality of the valley, as, as Lewis reminds us in the quote, these valleys are not just places people go, they're places we will go. 
It's places you will go. It's a place I will go as we go into the valley. And while no one longs for the valleys, no one gets excited for the valleys, as David reminds us in Psalm 23, we need not fear the valleys. Because even there, God is with us, even in the valley. And so this morning, we're just going to talk about verse 4. This morning, we're just going to talk about valleys. And when, and when I'm talking about valleys here, the, the, the translation we read, even in the valley of the shadow of death, and that can also be translated um, in the darkness, in the dark valley, in the deep darkness. So when I'm talking about valleys here, I'm using it as a euphemism for a period or a time of suffering, a time of pain. It may be, it may involve you. It may involve someone close to you that you're walking through. But that's what I'm talking about when we're talking about these valleys. And, and in doing so, here's what I want to do is I want to walk through four truths about the valley. Or four reminders when it comes to these valleys. And the first one we've already touched on and that is that the valleys are promised. The first reality is that valleys are promised. No one escapes life without walking through valleys. Nobody does. And that's true for the non-Christian, and that is true for the Christian. The Christian does not escape pain. As a matter of fact, the, the scriptures tend to actually give off the impression that as Christians, we should expect more. That we should expect more than our fair share. Jesus is clear about this. He's very direct. He says, in this world, you will have what? Trials. In this world, you will have Tribulation. Now he goes on to say, but fear not or take heart or take heed for I have overcome the world. But that doesn't negate the reality that suffering will come. And if we don't, you know, want to believe his words, just look at his life. Where does his life lead to? It leads to suffering and the cross. And then think of the myriad of characters in the Bible that we love to read about and think about all the valleys that are involved in their life. Think about Moses, you know, 40 years in the wilderness, never enters the promised land, though he is faithful. You think about Abraham, go to a land that I'll show you. I'll give, make you descendants like, as much as the stars in the sky. How many years before he has Isaac? How many years between the promise to Abraham and the birth of Isaac to Sarah? Roughly 25. 25 years he's waiting on that. Think of Noah in the valley of, well, everybody he knows is going to die. Right? Uh, think of David. David loses a child at birth. He has a daughter raped by his son, and then he has another son who then kills his son because his son raped his daughter, and then that son who killed the son who raped his daughter rebels against him and tries to kill him, and then he is killed. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, but Lord, here I am, send me. 
a prophet in, the, in a time where no one wants to listen, and his life, we believe, is ended by him being sawn in two. Jeremiah has a nickname. You know, we kind of have nicknames. You have nicknames. Maybe I have a nickname. Jeremiah has a nickname. It's called the Weeping Prophet because he spends his life speaking truth to a generation who doesn't care and doesn't want to hear him. And he, he ends his life really by, towards the end of his life, he, he's there and he writes lamentations when he sees Jerusalem being burned down and his people being exiled. He's in the valley. What about uh, Ruth? Her husband dies. She's a widow. She's poor. She goes with her mother-in-law, the Naomi, to a place that's not her own. We read through Esther. Yeah, she becomes queen, but then she receives an edict that says all her people are to be killed. That she's going to be queen when there's a genocide of all her people. You think of Mary, likely ostracized by her family, Society may be looking down on her. And don't forget, Mary watches her son be crucified. Mary's there at the cross when Jesus is crucified. John the Baptist is beheaded after he's imprisoned. The Apostle Paul is shipwrecked, beaten, scorned by family, and ultimately martyred. And speaking of martyrdom, 11 of the 12 disciples are martyred for their faith in Jesus, with the exception of John, who earns the reward of being exiled to the island of Patmos where he lives out the rest of his days. So valley upon valley upon valley upon valley. There's no avoiding it. No matter who you are, no matter how you live. Now, clearly some valleys we invite ourselves into through disobedience, and we kind of reap what we sow, but clearly not all valleys are like our fault. You can eat right and exercise and get cancer. You can love your spouse sacrificially and they leave you. So whoever you are, however you live, whatever you've done, you will enter in to some valleys. They are promised. Which brings us to our, our, our second point, which is that valleys have a purpose. So they are promised, right? But these valleys also have a purpose. There's no avoiding them, but there's also no accident. There's, there's purpose in the pain. There's value in navigating this unique terrain. There's a fascinating book written uh, a number of years ago by a guy named Philip Keller, and it's called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And it's a short little book. Honestly, you can read it and a few hours, if you have the time. But what's unique about this book is it, it, he's, he was actually a shepherd. So he was the son of missionary parents in Africa and spent much of his early life, at least, either around shepherds or as a shepherd. And so he has like just a real keen awareness of the relationship between a sheep and their shepherd and that experience and so he has like these just really unique insights into what David is thinking or what life is like as a shepherd. And, and I loved how he described the section of the valleys. But instead of just kind of quoting him, I, I thought I would do something a little bit different. And I'm just going to just read a bit 
just kind of a small section of this area. And so I just kind of want you to listen. I'm not going to put it on the screen. I just want you to listen. And, um, and he's another guy who lost his wife to cancer far too soon after a two-year battle. But this is what he writes about the valleys. It says, in the Christian life, we often speak of wanting to move onto higher ground with God. How we long to live above the lowlands of life. We want to get beyond the common crowd to enter a more intimate walk with God. We speak of mountaintop experiences and we envy those who have ascended the heights and entered into the more sublime sort of life. Often we get an erroneous idea about how this takes place. It is as though we imagined we could be airlifted onto higher ground. On the rough trail of the Christian life, this is not so. As with ordinary sheep management, so with God's people. One only gains higher ground by climbing up through the valleys. Every mountain has its valleys. Its sides are scarred by deep ravines and gulches and draws, and the best route to the top is always along these valleys. Any sheepman familiar with the high country knows this. He leads his flock gently but persistently up the paths that wind through the dark valleys. Another reason why sheep are taken to the mountaintops by way of the valleys is this. Not only is this the way of the gentlest grades, but also it is the well-watered route. Here one finds refreshing water all along the way. There are rivers, streams, springs, and quiet pools in the deep defiles. During the summer months, long drives can be hot and tiresome. The flocks experience intense thirst. How glad they are for the frequent watering places along the valley route where they can be refreshed. I recall one year when an enormous flock of over 10,000 sheep was being taken through our country en route to their summer range. The owners came asking permission to water their sheep at the river that flowed by our ranch. Their thirsty flocks literally ran to the water's edge to quench their burning thirst under the blazing summer sun. Only in our valley was there water for their parched flesh. How glad we were to share the water with them. As Christians, we will sooner or later discover that it is in the valleys of our lives that we find refreshment from God himself. It is not until we have walked with him through some very deep troubles that we discover he can lead us to find our refreshment in him right there in the midst of our difficulty. We are thrilled beyond words when there comes restoration to our souls and spirits from his own gracious spirit. So you can't escape the pain and suffering of life. The reality of the valleys. And, and while some valleys, let's be honest, seem to make no sense, all valleys are opportunities for growth and dependence. To be nourished by God in these valleys where we are parched, our flesh is parched, and we're desperate places where we can experience God with us uniquely. Valleys are one of the places where God um, intimately dwells with us. As Lewis himself writes in The Problem of Pain, that God whispers in our pleasure and shouts in our pain. We are most moldable oftentimes in our places of deepest pain. We are most dependent in places of our deepest desperation. And so we come to God 
in places when we're in the valley. I was even, just if, as an aside, if you followed this DeMar Hamlin situation with the Buffalo Bills where he passed out on the field and how that, that place of desperation did something to people in the league, in the NFL. And they interviewed Josh Allen, who's considered maybe the best quarterback in the NFL, and he even quote, was quoted saying, I'm not, I have not been a great Christian all my life, but this has done something to me. Like he just talked about how it's opened his eyes. As he was desperate for his teammate, whose life was in the balance on the field during a game. So those places where God just can work on us. We're more open to his leading, more open to his shaping. See, God never wastes anything. You realize that? He never wastes anything. No moment or experience. He never wastes it. And that doesn't just include the valleys. That's especially the valleys. It's especially the hard places. Another reason the valleys have a purpose is that through them, we become conduits of blessing to those who have walked through it as well or those who find themselves in that place right now. Paul, Paul writes this. The Apostle Paul thinks about this, and he's writing this in, in the book of 2 Corinthians. He opens it up in, in chapter 1. Excuse me, chapter yeah, 1, verse 3, he says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see that? There's a bridge. So one of the purposes of going through valleys is that you might be a blessing and an encouragement to someone who finds themselves there right now. Someone who's in that space. Like there's people in this church that have gone through hard things. Like hard things. There's people in this church that are, that are going through hard things like right now. Yesterday was one of those kind of these crazy days you have sometimes as a pastor. And so I got, I got a text in the morning from Emmett Fowler, our associate pastor, who let us know that his father had passed away. And so he's up in Nebraska right now with his family. Later in the day, got a, an, an email and text from Nancy Buchholz, who's just a rock-solid, she and Gabe, just rock-solid family in our church. She's on the women's leadership team that Gabe um, got sick while riding in, on a track, uh, riding his bike in Florida, and that had turned septic. And so Gabe has sepsis right now on life support in Florida. So she fl she's flying out there right now as we speak. And we're going to spend some time praying for them later. Got two more texts and calls throughout the, yesterday, throughout later in the day, of um, people in our body in the hospital that have had to go in for emergency purposes. So there's, there's, there's valleys, and that's just the ones, you know, I'm talking about right now. You, you've got valleys. You may be in one right now. It's just the reality of it, that valleys are promised and that valleys have a purpose. And one of the ways we as a church blessing 
church family can be a blessing to one another is coming alongside people when they're in the valleys. And when you can look at somebody, you can say, hey, I've been there. You're going through divorce? I've been there. You just got the cancer diagnosis? I've been there. You lost a child? I know what that feels like. When somebody can say that to you, it's so powerful to, to have that shared experience. And that's one of the ways a church family can bless one another. I remember when my father died, a number of you, and I had a number of friends who wrote me or reached out to me to talk to me about their experience of losing a, a parent and just their, how that felt and how they processed it and that journey they went on. And I was really thankful for that. And then, you know, 15, 18 months later, Justin Talbert's in my office saying, hey, my dad's got terminal cancer. And three or four months later, his father passed away. And so we got to walk through that together. Not that, man, I got all the answers, but we could sit with each other and I could say, hey, man, I, I, know, I know something about what you're going through. So the valleys are these places that can even be bridges for connection, like opportunities for compassion, and um, places where we can express the hope of Christ in our life. And God doesn't waste experiences. And even personally, it's not about me. We all have different valleys, and your valleys probably, there's many people in here whose valleys go deeper or, or darker than ones I've experienced. But I think about the deepest, darkest valleys of my life, whether it's my parents' divorce or the loss of my father, what have you, those are the things that God has used the most in my life, both to shape me and to minister to others. Like he, he has used the valleys in my life in a major way to be a place where I can minister from to those who are in hurting places. So I don't celebrate the valleys. I'm not looking for more. I don't get excited about them, but I've seen the Lord use them in powerful ways and just in my own life. Because there's purpose in the valleys. Thirdly, thirdly, valleys aren't permanent. Valleys aren't permanent. In verse 4, what does David write? He says, even though I walk through the valley of shadow and death. So there's a, valleys are seasonal. Valleys are temporary. Whenever I'm with somebody who's in a deep place of pain, one thing, once again, I, I never say, I know what you're feeling. I never say, don't be sad. I mean, what I, what I do say is, it's, it's not always going to feel like this. It's not always going to feel like this. It's not always going to feel like this. Valleys are temporary. Even death itself. Death is not permanent for the believer, right? Death is not the destination, but really a, a door. For those who are in Christ, death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Death is not the end. Notice it's called the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow of death. And it's, think of the word shadow. That's powerful for two reasons. One, to have a shadow, you have to have what? Light. You have to have light. And secondly, a shadow cannot hurt you. 
It's the shadow. It reminds me of one of my, my favorite um, illustrations. I share it often at funerals. And I probably shared it in here before. And it's Donald. It's a, it's a story about the great 20th century preacher, Donald Barnhouse. And Barnhouse describes the day uh, in the story of, of when he was driving his children to his wife's funeral. His wife died at, at a young age. And, and so he's, he's taking his kids to the funeral where he used to preach. And they come into this town along the way, this small town. And they get stopped at a red light. And Barnhouse says in front of him was the largest truck like he had ever seen. And this truck um, was shining, the sun was shining, and this truck created this huge shadow that was on the snow next to his car. And he notices it, and then he turns to his kids, and he says, hey, do you see the shadow? And they say, yes. And he says, would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow? And the child, his youngest kid answers, well, the shadow. The shadow couldn't hurt anybody. And Barnhouse looks at his kids and said, that's right. Death is a truck, but the shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. He says, the truck ran over the Lord Jesus. Only the shadow went over your mother. Isn't that powerful? the valley of the shadow of death. Shadow involves light, and a shadow can't hurt you. Jesus took the pain. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Victory over death. And Paul follows that up by saying the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Valleys are promised, valleys have a purpose, but valleys aren't permanent. And the authors of Scripture, once again, are great in reminding us of this because we need to be reminded. So the Apostle Paul writes in, to the church in Corinth again, he says, <clears throat> We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. He says our inner self is being renewed by day, day by day. It says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See what he's saying there? He's saying it's seasonal and it doesn't compare with what is to come. The Apostle Peter says something similar in, in his epistle, 1 Peter, that's going to the churches in kind of modern day Turkey. He says the same thing. He opens up his letter. He says, in this you rejoice in the gospel, this future inheritance. But then he says this. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So for a season, you suffer. But it's not permanent. What is permanent is the glory to come. What is permanent is our victory in Christ. What is permanent is God's love for you. And that brings us to our fourth and final point, which is that God is with us in the valleys. God is with us in the valleys. So they're promised, yes. They have a purpose, though. 
They have a purpose to shape us and to minister through us. They're not permanent. There's a season to them. And the reason they're not permanent is because of the presence of God in our lives. They're not permanent because of who the good shepherd is. Because the good shepherd is going to lead us out. He's going to lead us through and he's going to lead us out. And that's the powerful words of verse 4, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's another place, once again, where this this book ministered to me because Keller writes about this as well. He writes about this time, this unique season, part of the year where the shepherd takes the, the sheep, the flock in the valleys on this treacherous journey. He says, during this time, the flock is entirely alone with the shepherd. They are in intimate contact with him and under his personal attention day and night. That is why these last verses are couched in such intimate first-person language. And it is well to remember that this is all done against a dramatic background of wild mountains, rushing rivers, alpine meadows, and high rangelands. David, the psalmist, of course, knew this type of terrain firsthand. When Samuel was sent of God to anoint him king over Israel, he was not at home with his brothers on the home ranch. Instead, he was high up on the hills tending his father's flock. They had to send for him to come home. It is no wonder he could write so clearly and concisely of the relationship between a sheep and its owner. He knew from firsthand experience about all the difficulties and dangers, as well as the delights of the tracks into high country. Again and again, he had gone up into the summer range with his sheep. He knew this wild but wonderful country like the palm of his own strong hand. Never did he take his flock where he had not already been before. Always he had gone ahead to look over the country with care. All the dangers of rampaging rivers and flood, avalanches, rock slides, poisonous plants, the ravages of predators and the raid that raid the flock, or the awesome storms of sleet and hail and snow were familiar to him. He had handled his sheep and managed them with care under all these adverse conditions. Nothing took him by surprise. He was fully prepared to safeguard his flock and tend them with skill under every circumstance. All this is brought out in the beautiful simplicity of this verse. Here is a grandeur, a quietness, an assurance that sets the soul at rest. I fear no evil, for you are with me. With me in every situation, in every dark trial, in every dismal disappointment, in every distressing dilemma. He's with us in the valley. He's the shepherd who's gone before and himself gone through the valley. He will not leave us alone in the valley, and he has promised to bring those who are part of his flock out of the valley to the home range with our shepherd leading the way. And because of that, David says, no matter the valley, no matter the valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. It's just so powerful. Last week, we talked about a life without want. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This week, a life without fear, which in many ways to me seems more like difficult to imagine. I mean, how many 
of us and how many decisions we make and how many responses to people we have are governed and motivated even subconsciously by fear. Like, aren't all insecurities ultimately rooted in fear in some capacity? Fear of not being good enough. Fear of failure. Fear of loss. Fear of um, death. Fear of rejection. Think about how fear infiltrates dang near everything from our relationships to our work to our private lives how much of it involves fear and David says for you are with me I will not fear I fear no evil it's it's an incredible idea and it's something that the Apostle John really tries to drive home in 1 John, in the letter of 1 John. In verse 18, chapter 4, he says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So it says, when you're walking in the purity of God's love, you recognize I need not fear because the creator of the universe, the shepherd to my soul, loves me perfectly. And I'm free to let go of the fears that so grip me because the good shepherd is by my side. And how, how powerful is the presence of God? And how beautiful is it to know that you are not alone? And how does that change how we live? And the fear that so grips our heart. My brother, I was talking to my brother a couple days ago, who's actually in the hospital as well. He's had some health issues with um, his foot, and it's, he's been in and out of the hospital. It's been, a, it's been a tough deal for him. So we were on the phone, and we were talking, we were reminiscing a bit, and we talked about, uh, I was talking about what I was preaching on, and, and a memory from our time growing up, going to my Mima and Papa was in East Texas. So I got some deep East Texas ties, and I can't tell you how many times we would make the track, you know, from sunny San Antonio to the piney woods of Sherino, Texas, population 300, where my me, mom, papa lived, and they had, you know, uh, like over 100 acres and, and this huge pasture and all these cows, and it would get dark. I mean, like country dark. And I was a city slick, man. I'm from San Antonio. And we would go there, and my papa would take us out in the pasture, and we would just drive him crazy because I would just be amazed at the size of the cow feces that we would drive by. And I would just go, oh, my gosh, papa, look at that one. Oh, and he'd be like, gosh, dog, that boy, you know. But it would get, it would get like dark. And it was, so it was this special place, but it was a scary place. And every once in a while, you would have this terrible thing that would happen where you would forget something in the car. And nighttime would come, and you'd realize, oh, man, I need that thing. But there ain't no way you're going outside. Because that was like the longest walk that had ever been invented from the house to the car. I mean, it was like 20 yards, okay, of pure darkness. 
And you just knew the predators that were just waiting there to kill you or the, the Sherino crime bosses that had the syndicate that was ready to take you out in the, in the woods of Sherino, Texas. And so you were left with a dilemma. Like you either just don't get the thing you need, you go out there by yourself, or you do what any good younger brother would do, is you go get your big brother to take you out there. And I would go get Daniel. And I would say, hey, man, can you walk with me to the car? And he would, he'd walk with me. And then you walk to the car. You're not afraid at all. I could have gone anywhere. It may have been noon. Because he was with me by my side. He was my big brother. And that's the picture of Psalm 23. That's the picture. Is that of course you can't go out there alone. I mean, of course. It's so hard. It's so dark. It's so scary. It's so painful. But you don't have to. You don't have to go alone. Because he's with us. He's there to protect us. He's there to comfort us. He's there to defend us. And that's what the... That's what David ends with when he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This speaks to the, the shepherd's ability to protect and defend the sheep. So they would have this shepherd's staff, you know. Sometimes they'd carry two things, but a lot of times it's one, and it would function in two ways. In one way, it functions as like a weapon. So your rod. So some would carry almost like a sword in their belt, but you, it could just be a single staff. And so here comes an animal, here comes something, it's, it's, I mean, it's, you get out your Omaha bat, you know, and you're going to work on whatever animal's near you or whatever intruder's coming near your flock. So the, the, the rod is defense. Yeah, he's got you. John 10, no one will take you out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one can snatch you. What, what does Paul say one time? Or, or Jesus says, the worst thing they can do is kill you. You know, well, that seems pretty bad. He says, but I got you. So the, the rod speaks to, to the fence, and then the, the, the other one, the staff speaks to kind of this comfort and, and direction, protect, like, so maybe, he, you know, sheep are dumb. Good thing we're not like sheep, but sheep are dumb. And so here's the edge of a cliff, right? You know, I mean, they may just walk right off the cliff. And so the shepherd, with his staff, they say, just hook him over. Going to push him to the, push him back. Now, don't walk off the cliff, you dork. You know, don't do that. Or maybe some, even sometimes the, the shepherd, they'll 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 touch the sheep just to let them know they're there. Is that cool? They're not wandering per se, but they're just wandering. And I'll just go. Touch the side of the sheep. I got you. I'm here. I'm here. So your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They comfort me because I know you're protecting and because I know you're guiding. I know you're here and I know you're going to bring me through. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The valleys are promised 
The valleys have a purpose. The valleys are not permanent, and along the way, we are not alone because the shepherd is with us, and he will bring us through. And so the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And because the Lord is with me, I shall not fear. And so we're going to spend some time now in prayer. I want to give you a little space to go before the Lord. And those are the two things I just want to focus on. Number one, is the Lord your shepherd? I get you're at church, so you probably have some context of what I'm talking about. But I'm not asking like, did you go to VBS when you were a kid? Or did you go to church? Or did you grow up in a family where they went to church? I'm asking you, is the Lord your shepherd? Is he the one you follow? Is he the one you trust? If not, I want to give you space to say, Lord, I want to follow you. You are the good shepherd. And then the second thing is, what fear do you need to lay down at the feet of the good shepherd? Because he's with you. For you are with me. I will fear no evil. So is there something right now, you just need to let, I mean, you need to let go of it. Or take the first step towards letting go of it. I know some things are so deeply ingrained in us, you can't just go, oh yeah, why am I afraid of that? Okay, I'm done. Like it's deep. But you got to take the first step, right? Say, I, I will not fear. I'm not going to live there. And it starts right here. And I'm laying it down for you are with me. So I want to give you space right now to do that. And then I'll come back up and pray um, for us together. And then we'll, we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We don't come necessarily thankful for the valleys, but we certainly are thankful that you are with us when we're there. That for, us, for those of us that are your sheep, there's never a time where we're outside the presence or the purview of the shepherd. And because you are with us, God, we have nothing to fear. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And so, Father, I pray right now that we would come to understand more and more what it means to know you as our shepherd. More and more what it means to walk in so much trust that all our fear washes away. So, Father, would you grow that in each one of us right now? And, God, we pray that even in the midst of valleys going on in our congregation. God, I think in particular of the Fowler family and the, the homegoing of Emmett's father. Would you be with them? God, I think of the, the Buchholzes. God, I pray for Gabe right now. God, I pray that soon he will see this prayer that he'll be in a place where he will watch this and know that his church family was praying for him. And that even in this valley, God is with him. 
And so we lift up he and Nancy and the entire Buchholz family. We lift up all those, all those in our body who find them in a place of the valley. May they take heart and gladness and courage in the presence of the shepherd. Father, we commit this to you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.